Coming up on episode 102 of Appetite for Distortion, or perhaps this episode should be named Appetite for Emotion. Ex-Great White and Guns N' Roses manager Alan Nibben joins us, and we talk about depression, mental health, addiction, and of course how all that all relates to Guns N' Roses. Welcome to the podcast. Do you know where you are? Do you know where you are? is Appetite for Distortion. And welcome to the podcast, Appetite for Distortion, episode 102, 102. It is... Brando, and thanks to everybody who tuned in to, because uh, we went a couple weeks without doing episodes, and now I'm cranking them out. Uh, we had uh, Dave Elfson from uh, from Megadeth and uh, Frank Bello from Anthrax. They're their brand new band. They came on talking uh, altitudes and attitude, and and working with uh, with Bumblefoot and, and talking about GNR. Then last episode uh, was was truly interesting. Uh, it was Doug Goldstein as co-host, but the main guest was a chiropractor by the name of Dr. Stephen Thaxton, who told some unbelievable stories. The feedback of that has been incredible. Uh, if you haven't heard it yet, there's a great story about Axel's sister uh, looking for cocaine to help to help somebody. Not for the bad reasons for cocaine, but to actually help somebody. So uh, thanks to Alternative Nation for putting out those articles, and, and also uh, Ultimate Guitar for making some articles out of the last episode. And... and to continue down the road of just, I, I don't know where this podcast is going to go. Never thought I would talk to a chiropractor. Never thought I'd be talking um, with another Guns N' Roses manager who is, this is his third appearance, a former Guns N' Roses manager, of course I should say, in, in Great White, but, but current awesome dude and uh, current Coyotes fan, Alan Niven, part three. How's it going, sir? Uh, it's going well. I'm a little warmer than you. Um, I do have to ask. How and when could cocaine actually help? Was it used as an anesthetic? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so the chiropractor went, Dr. Steve, uh, they were doing a show in, uh, in Columbia. And if, uh, Alan, you may, <laughs> you may recall this, right? I know, Columbia, of all places. They were supposed to do back-to-back nights of 80,000. And then the, uh, Doug was saying the promoter's like, let's do it in one night. But the capacity couldn't hold 160,000 people. So this, this was uh, an event after my time. Okay. Uh, and uh, yeah, I was I was amused by a comment that somebody made the other day that um, too many managers, <laughs> and I had to laugh and agree. Um, I can definitely see that person's point of view. I mean, there were at least two or three before myself and there's been quite a cavalcade afterwards of some very substantial people like, you know, Doc McGee and Irving Azoff and Merck from uh, Sanctuary and my word. It's like you're in a yeah. like you're in a special club, like the Elk Club. Like the like a Friars Club. I don't know. It's uh Well, we've spoken to a couple other than yourself and Doug, we spoke to, to Raz Q 
who got Axel in L.A. Guns, so I don't know if you can count him as the first. But Vicki Hamilton says she's the first. And I mean, everyone who I've spoken to is nice. Um, of course, Team Brazil is very quiet, but that's just, I guess, the, how they do things. Well, they're very busy, aren't they? I mean, uh, as a curly-head friend, friend of mine pointed out recently, it takes eight of them to keep Axel happy and moving. <laughs> um, but I would make the observation that he's just done two years of very substantial touring. So you have to tip your hat to Team Brazil for getting that done. Well done. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was a success. People thought it wouldn't last past the Troubadour show. So whatever is, do is being done worked. Most of the people on the crew didn't think it would get past Coachella. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, exactly. That's what I, I had meant as far as the uh, the first uh, show. Um, yeah. But to go back to what you said before, we were just talking off the air. Um, yeah, you're, in, you're home in Arizona, and I'm here in the bitter cold New York. Although, I mean, we have listeners everywhere. I mean, the Midwest is in the negatives. My brother who's in Ohio is sending me... That's the cool thing to do. I know, Alan, you're not uh, big on social media, but the cool thing to do is to show the thermostat and how low it is. So, you know, people in the, in the negatives, I feel really bad for. But, I mean, right now it's in the 20s, but it's been in the teens and here in New York, and it's just awful. And I, I just got into natural conversation with you and I about uh, seasonal depression. <laughs> it's just awful. And one of the uh, things that keeps me going, actually, is this podcast. Uh, you know, it, it, it's helped me get through some dark, uh, dark times in GNR. Um, and I found it interesting. One of our conversations we've had off air as we talk, um, you know, with Mitch LaFont about hockey. And, you know, it's one of the, the cool perks that I've had doing this podcast is to kind of get friendly with some of the people that I've looked up to or just had a, this really cool life and still do. Uh, we, we were because I was very open and honest about uh, to you about my, my life. And you had said uh, you got very depressed after Guns N' Roses. And as you alluded to before, they've gone through a cycle of managers. I feel like that now with the Knicks. Maybe the, the, the Guns N' Roses is like the Knicks. They, get, they have to get the right team and keep firing and hiring people. Um, it almost sounds like Chelsea Football Club. Um, well, here in America, well, I, you're, you're not, well, you've been in America for a while. You've been in America for a while, but here in America, we just, I don't know. I have some friends that like soccer. It's just, it's not for me. We can agree for on hockey. We can talk hockey. I can talk. Is Pele still playing? I'm just kidding. That I know. Uh, no, he, he, I don't think he's still playing. But there again, I think, you know, when the, the thing about soccer, and we'll just digress for a moment. Sure. Get to the heavy things. But the thing about soccer is that I don't consider it the greatest of spectator sports. But if you've ever played it, it's a game anybody can play, and it can be a lot of fun to, to play. And if somebody's ever been into the game, if you drop a ball in front of them, they'll immediately revert back to being, you know, 11 or 12 years old and think that they can run all afternoon and chase a ball around. Um, you know, you throw a soccer ball in front of me today, my brain will go, ooh, ball, let's play. And after about 30 seconds, my body goes, what the fuck do you think you're doing? <laughs> like one of your cats. Just, just stop, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Your chest starts heaving, you can't breathe, and you go, oh, 
Wow, that doesn't work so well anymore. <laughs> no, no, it's you got to work up the cardio, Alan. You got to, uh, I don't know, go sh- shark diving. You got to, you got to do uh, the old axle exercises of just running around for two and a half hours. See where that gets you. Yeah, I wouldn't be doing that in a hurry. And uh, you know, when when people talk about exercise, I find that the notion of exercise for its own sake is very unedifying. But you know, walking is what we're designed to do. So that's one good thing about living in a city. Um, if you can walk places. Uh, yeah, that's that's what my girl my girlfriend likes. But I like my I have my car, which is not good in the city. But that ties everything I think together. Why why I have the car in soccer? Because uh, as I've spoken to you about, I have a neurological disability, uh, which affects the. Um, the muscles, because the, the message is called a demyelinating peripheral neuropathy. Not in any pain, uh, just a weakness in the muscles due to that. So, you know, I think initially when I, I got attracted to, to broadcasting as a kid, I wanted to be in a sports broadcaster. Now, my disability started when I was around nine, and it's kind of slowly progressed over time. But just not being able to play sports, it kind of hurt to talk about it emotionally. And I think that's when I started to gravitate towards rock. And and specifically, I mean, my, my first love, and it's funny, I think today, actually, as we're recording this, is the 25th anniversary of Dookie uh, from Green Day. Right. Which, by the way, Alan, and I want to know your first album that you ever got of all time, um, first album ever that you got. Uh, it was my first album that I got in, in a cassette, and I got it in my Hanukkah stocking, my Snoopy Hanukkah stocking. Well, the first record that I ever got was actually a 45, it was 7-inch vinyl. And it was an instrumental by a band called The Shadows, and the track was called Apache. And the lead guitarist is a guy called Hank Marvin. And I may be wrong on this, but I believe he was playing the very first Stratocaster that was ever brought into the United Kingdom. Hmm. Uh, he used to back... Um, a an entertainer, I won't call him a rock and roller. Um, he was dressed up as a rock and roller in the beginning of his career to be sort of English Elvis. His name was Cliff Richard. And uh, the story is, I know it was that Cliff was in the U- US and saw this interesting looking, different looking, shiny red guitar and he bought it and he brought it back for Hank Marvin and that was the first Stratocaster to uh, be brought back to London Um, but that was the first single I got and of course you know the first um, LP um, was with the Beatles okay yeah very cool my first that would be my first album very cool. Yeah, I think my first were Doogie and probably Dangerous from Michael Jackson, both cassettes, of course. Wow. My era. Make me feel old. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm making people feel old. I think I showed my youngest brother, who's 22, a, um, a cassette player, and he, he didn't know how to use it. He's like, what do you what do? you do?" Plenty of videos online of, you know, the, the true youngins trying to work a rotary phone. Hey, at least I remember rotary phones. You know. Yeah, th- that's kind of amusing you know, to watch isn't it <laughs> with, with old rotary phones but you know I, I still have my uh, original Sony Walkman 
Um, okay. The, the first one that they brought out that had the little sliding uh, potentiometers for volume control left and right. Sure. I, I've still got that, and it works. And you know, if something works and you look after it, and if it if it was well built, it'll sustain and it'll work. And you know, every now and then you'll pull out a box of cassettes and go, "Oh my God, look at these! I'd forgotten about these." And you know, play one. But um, I, it, it's interesting that you say that um, not being able to talk about sport and not being able to participate in sport had that a serious effect on you. Um, I think that's... Uh, I, th I think that's not an uncommon situation when people start to feel a little bit less than in their school um, when they don't measure up on the sports field or don't get picked or don't have an affinity for, and a coordination um, for being sporting. Um, you know, I went to British boarding school, so, you know, sport was a big part of the curriculum and uh, one was expected to participate, if not excel. And uh, it, it was interesting because, you know, kids in my age group who started to get into music first and, and, and soonest were the ones who weren't playing on the rugby team. Mm. You're right, and you identify with what I'm trying to, to get across, and it's interesting, you know, of course, to segue everything into what this podcast is about, why I started to gravitate towards Guns N' Roses. Green Day was probably, you know, the early on in my disability, I really didn't understand, I just thought I just had a limp. Then as I got older, and of course, uh, dating girls or, or wanting to, to date girls because I was uh, deathly afraid, I was one of those those kids of you know afraid of actually talking to a girl because the worst that can happen getting rejected of course uh, but then just seeing what Axl Rose represented to me at the time which was this great balance of punk rock which is what I got from Green Day but the the heaviness of of metal and the blues and all of that just kind of spoke to me. And I may have mentioned this on the podcast before. I don't know if I've said this to you before, uh, Alan. Uh, I had something. This was before, you know, as we're talking about old versus new, this was before Facebook really became big. I think it was probably around the time of MySpace. Uh, I had something called a live journal, and that was where you would write your your entries online. Uh, about It was an online diary, essentially. And my... My icon was the last scene in November Rain where Axel had the, you know, the raindrops. It was like a GIF before GIFs became really popular nowadays. But uh, the animated raindrops going on his face, my, the backdrop, uh, my whole background was Axel uh, in the... Actually, I think I'm wearing a similar flannel right now today that he was wearing when, along with the kilt. And it was just something that it, it spoke to me, you know. It was kind of a, an emotional band with emotional lyrics but it was hard enough it, it was it was okay enough for me to get it wasn't wallowing where uh, like a, you know whether it was like new wave or or straight up emo that kind of music so there's something about gnr that that spoke to me and and helped me i guess but then of course with my disability my like my left hand doesn't rip as well thankfully i use my right for a lot of things um but i can't play guitar you know, I can't do that, but there was something about radio that gravitated, uh, that I gravitated towards. 
playing bands that I loved on the radio. There was just something about it that I felt very inclusive. But as I've gotten to know you, it just it's sometimes it's like, does anyone feel like I feel? You, you've put your finger dead center on the heart of the matter as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, ob- obviously, um, if with the, with the Beatles as my first album, um, it's getting harder and harder for me to convince people I'm 27 years old. Um, and obviously getting a little older than that. But um, with that comes a, a degree of re- retrospection um, within yourself, if not questions from others of why did you give your life to and your life's energy to rock, to rock and roll and pursuing that 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 way of living um, oh, one of the things that I identified really early on um, and when I was a kid I developed you know in my later teens a pretty strong anti-authoritarian streak but I identified the fact that we live in a coercive world that we can be coerced by <clears throat> family, um, peer pressure, um, local society pressure. Uh, we we have laws, um, state laws, national laws. We have um, spiritual and religious instruction, and you know, in certain hands, that is fire and brimstone, so talk about coercion there. Hold on one second while I take a sip of juice, if I may. No, all good. Is it gin and juice? No, just just juice, darling. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and what I, what I loved about rock and roll and music in a an intelligent and spirited form was the fact that it could suspend alienation and it has the capacity to bring people together by their own consent. And that to me is the critical aspect. So if somebody's to sit on their bed and play me a song and I recognize the emotion and the spirit and the intelligence within it and recognize what is being said, out of that recognition comes a willing bridge of humanity between us that is not coerced. And that, to me, is the beauty of it. This is us saying, yeah, I recognize you. You're cool. You're human. I like you too, you know? And Mm -hmm. you do it musically. And it is something that is given willingly and not obliged. Yeah. I I feel that. And and that, that, pardon me, that to me is the great the greatest significance of music at its best and at its highest. And, you know, with, with GNR, um, obviously there have been moments when, when you have to sit and marvel at the response that the band and the album got. And the one, one of the things that I, that I'm absolutely convinced of um, having lived through it, was that we got an amazing blue-collar response, which 
I thought was really, really cool because, um, again, the best of rock and roll, t to me, has the potential to speak truth to power. And it can be the, the voice of the disenfranchised. Um, I mean, I think we're getting more and more aware that this world we live in is run by very few people with most of the means and the money. And uh, m more than once, you will hear me at the kitchen table muttering about the fact that most of us, without realizing it, attack slaves. And if, if there's a slight political bent in this, I think one of the biggest cons ever perpetuated on society is that Republicans care about the working man. Good God, they don't. They'll say they do, but my God, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, they're the people behind the savings and loan scam. They're the people behind the uh, derivative scams. They're the people behind the, uh, the real estate scams. Um, and, you know, I just wish mainstream and middle America would wake up to the fact that they're being abused and put a stop to it. Yeah, it's uh, it's tough because I also do work, work on a, a political show uh, in addition just to a multitude of things I do at iHeart. And to hear it day in and day out, and this ties into everything with depression because it uh, obviously, I mean, here in, in the United yeah. States, but, um, you know, a lot of people have been depressed the last, uh, what, three years? Um, but that's that can be said of everybody across the world. There are, there are far worse regimes and, you know, yeah genocides and, and all the horrible things that that happened and i think that again that ties into why for again for me it's different for you you having worked with axel rose but for me seeing him at the time like a mythical figure like he was he-man or homer simpson he was just <laughs> he was just a character you know to me I, well he, yeah and i mean there was a there was a deliberation there there was a reason why we designed the Celtic cross for the skulls on it. Um, and why is that? To, well, it, it, was, it was to make it seem just a little more accessible. Um, I love the idea of you being able to identify um, everybody in a band, you know, John, Paul, George, and Ringo, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, it's the same concept. And it, it draws people closer to a musical entity if you can identify with everybody so there was that sense of let's make everybody identifiable no one's more significant than the other and a major part of the rock and roll mythology is that you can beat the system and you can beat the man and you can live a life that promises some freedom um, and that it's almost a responsibility in my eyes for a band to hold together and stay together to honor and preserve that mythology because out of that mythology comes hope. And I think that's also a part of the contract with the audience in that those in the audience who have to suffer the daily grind, who have to work really hard, who are maybe in soul-destroying occupations or a means of life that they don't see much future in. They can come to a, come to a show and celebrate that. Hey, some of the guys made it out of here, 
you know, and there they are on stage, and we can celebrate that together in that moment. I think that's an important part of the contract between, you know, a legitimate band and and, and its and its following. Um, you don't see that often now. I think that's a lot of the problem. Like you may just identify with the, the front man, and that's it. You don't know everybody else in the band, like you said with John Paul, uh, Ringo, and and George, and of course with with G and R. Um, but where I was going with that, and uh, like what, and I think we, last time we spoke, you may have said you liked the direction that Axel was going with Civil War, and and I would look at it absolutely like a category of he's got Civil War. He's got estranged. He's got it's so easy. He's got one in a million, and it's it's not the same lyrics. I love ACDC, but it's all the same. You know, you go there for one mood. Here, it, it, I found a place where I can get all of it, and, and said in such an, an intelligent manner that didn't speak to me before. And it was something about that that just made me feel cool. Liking Guns N' Roses made me feel cool, and it still, I guess, does. I feel silly saying that, but it wasn't, you know. No, you shouldn't. You shouldn't feel silly saying it um, because that wasn't all accidental I mean there was a lot of thought that went into what made Guns N' Roses Guns N' Roses and I don't think it goes without notice that it was the video for Welcome to the Jungle that started the blue touch paper to the firework fizzing really hard um, and quite deliberately that video was a steal of three movies um, Midnight Cowboy mm. you know that's the ingenue coming to the big city and we were talking about living in you know how, t how it can be tough some days to deal with city living um, and here's the ingenue with, with the uh, stem of grass in his mouth to denote, yeah, he's come from rural Hick Lafayette or wherever, but he's coming to the city to chase his dreams. Then you have the steal from the man who fell to earth. Um, and in that particular movie, it's when the alien is so perplexed by human behavior, he isolates himself in a rundown motel with all these stacks of TVs watching them all simultaneously to figure out what the hell is going on in this place. Right. And, and then you have the steal from Clockwork Orange where you're forced to watch one screen and it is driving you fucking mm -hmm. crazy what's going on. And we intersperse that with um, actual news footage um, that we see on a daily basis. I mean, I, I got a, a phone call out of London yesterday um, from a company called ITN, which is a major TV uh, uh, producer in the United Kingdom. And they want to come over and set up cameras and talk and so on and so forth. And I found myself talking to the producer and, and saying, you know, in, it's interesting watching newsfeed from the Sky Channel right now. In some ways, I think I'm watching Welcome to the Jungle perpetually <laughs> every day. <laughs> and, you know, I think that video told people, yeah, this is a band with an attitude, but it's also a band with an intelligence because obviously right. all this was built on 
Axel's lyric. And within that lyric was in a very an acerbic, insightful viewpoint. So, you know, that meant that we could make a, make a video that actually had a social commentary that showed intelligence, that we didn't just have big booby girls running around in it, to, you know, for eye candy to catch people, you know, males to watch the latest rock and roll song. Um, I think there was a clear indicator from the get-go of, yeah, we might have a fucking attitude, but we've also got a fucking point of view, mate. Mm. You know, and and I think that came across, and I think that was part of what inspired the most amazing reaction that the band got in 1988. And that's what I took pride in, in, in having them be my my favorite band over Metallica, or you know, if I want to go like how my dad brought me uh, brought me up on the Doors and Zeppelin. It was just something about that that just I don't know. I felt very inclusive and not knowing you know yourself yet. I mean, who really knows themselves when they're in their early 20s or, or late teens? That's when you're still kind of, I mean, you could say you spend your entire life finding yourself. That's what my dad said when he was in his uh, late 50s, still trying to figure it out. Um, but there was, again, there, there was just something different. And when we were talking about, uh, all, like we were talking about this episode, talking about this, we're going to have this conversation as an episode. You mentioned one specific lyric that I don't know why it, it never really dawned on me because that's how I felt a lot while listening to GNR. And that was from Estranged, right? You're, talk, you're talking to yourself? Talking to myself and nobody's home. It's just, you, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people can identify with, I, I talk to myself all the time. I still do. All yep. the time. And yep. that and, and of course, many of uh, Axel's lyrics spoke to me and it, it's just trying to, again, trying to find out who I am, and it's weird how I just latched onto this band, onto this man that I, I never met, didn't really know anything about. Um, but again, another off-air conversation that we have, uh, it's, 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 again, trying to find out who um, I can bond with over this. It's not just, okay, it's just me and a band. It's like, it's it's getting involved with the fans, it's going on the forums and seeing that other people can feel like that uh, as well. Is, is well, in, 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 in some ways, is it that much different from, and I, and I think this might have been the emotional and intellectual portal of the past. You know, it used to be very important to people to know which books you liked and that people would bond through a certain book and that would be the indicator of okay, we've got some things in common. We can see things the same way. Um, you know, because I, I think, you know, it's obviously a rite of human passage that when you get into your teens and your late teens, you go through a period of rejection where you're repudiating and rejecting the things that don't make sense to you. And you may not be able to even articulate it to yourself, but instinctively, you know it's not right, or something's wrong, or you just feel that, no, this this isn't for me, I don't get this. Um, you know, and when I was growing up, the, that was uh, the middle class, um, heavy use of alcohol, uh, the viewpoints that came out of that, um, didn't work for me. 
and I went, you know, went through that rite of passage that we all go through of pushing that away, and then slowly you start to build on the things that you go, yeah, this does work, you know, and that for me, that for me was music. Um, Here's the interesting thing, though, and and to tie it again into my my stupid uh, live journal, which I is was all GNR'd out. Uh, I ended up meeting. This was before Tinder and and Bumble and all those dating websites. You know, just people would just find you randomly online through different means back then. Uh, somebody friended me from Canada, Ottawa, uh, from Ottawa, Canada, to uh, that saw that I had a common interest of Axl Rose, and she. We ended up, I don't know if you air quote dating for like a uh, a few years. So. Uh, but with that, with that relationship, and, and and referring to what I said before about bonding with other fans over it, it's still there was still something missing. Like it's for me, it's weird. I don't know how you are, Alan. It's like I need some sort of um, verification, like where the compliment is coming from. I need to, and it needs to be. It's it's it needs to be more than just a peer for me because I think so uh, low of myself, or I mean, I did, or still have issues with that. So. Finding out about, you know, Axel, uh, that he had issues before growing up, things that I perceived as way worse than anything I had gone through at that time, a disability included, and seeing where he, what heights he reached, and also tying that into, and we talked about this last episode with Dr. Steve and, and Doug, was the lack of drugs that he, 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 wasn't, a, he wasn't as much of an addict uh, as Slash was, as Duff, as Steven. So there was just something there that like, okay, wow, this guy who to me was He-Man, he was a, a character that he suffered like me and I would always defend him. A guy, again, a guy I didn't know. Oh, Axel's a, he's an asshole. Or This was again before when he was like gone for 10 years. No one really knew. knew. Uh, but I would defend him. Like, you don't know what he's going through. And I would feel like I was speaking for myself, too. You don't know what I'm going through. Why are you going to judge me? You don't know what Axel's going through. You, you, you put, again, you, you put your finger on something really close to the center of the matter. Um, and it, and it, it made me smile when you referred to Axel as a character. Because, obviously, um, you can talk about Bill Bailey. Right. Or you can talk about W. Axel Rose, because, yes, he did what almost everybody who, who moves to Los Angeles. I mean, it, you know, the history of this is long. Um, he reinvented himself in Los Angeles. I mean, you know, John Wayne was marrying somebody. Um, Marilyn Monroe was Norma Jean somebody. Right. Uh, and Brando is Brandon. <laughs> so <laughs> I understand that. I do like, to yeah. a degree, I do. There's a sense of reinvention. Right. Um, yeah. And like anything else, in excess, it may not have the end results that are desired. But I think we can look at ourselves as as, as in process that we are in a, in a way, works of art and development. And I think it's fine to re reinvent yourself because another way of looking at it is just saying, I'm forming my value system. And that goes down to my personal presentation, what I agree with, what I don't agree with, how I treat other people. And you form your own 
value system and you stick with it. Um, so, yeah, Axel is a character um, who came out of, the, out of a chrysalis um, that was once called Bill Bailey. Um, but again, you know, especially with levels of success, and success is a word I have a little bit of a problem with. How do you, how do you define it? I mean, there are people who are millionaires who are miserable. Well, I was about to say, um, more commonly, I viewed success as a figment of an envious imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that, you know, as with everything, two sides to the story, and there's a, there's a balance in there somewhere. Um, because I'll also look at Axel and go, you know what, dude, you have had the most extraordinarily privileged existence in life. And I hope that you appreciate and honor and respect that um, to some degree, that you, as you get older, you, you come to terms with um, past baggage, present baggage, present problems, so on and so forth. Um, it's, it's obvious from a lot of the material that was written back in the 80s that one of the things that fired up Axel's muse was was conflict and it's probably a little hard to be you know an angst ridden rock and roller in your 50s and and wear that with a with a genuine face but he's had an incredibly privileged life. And I hope he knows that, and I hope he appreciates that. Not everybody comes from modest backgrounds in Indiana and ends up owning an extraordinarily large house overlooking the ocean in Malibu. Um, that's, that's a hell of a journey. And it was made with a lot of people. A lot of people put a lot of effort into that. Um, and it was made with four other members of a band too Um, chemistry and energy Um, it's a conversation I've had with other people before too is that I sometimes look at bands and see them as an attempt by people who have come from really dysfunctional backgrounds and families to create their perfect family and when it's one for all and all for one and against the odds everybody holds together but inevitably if the band becomes successful at some point all the dysfunctional baggage that has been brought by everybody into the into the band gets opened up and unpacked and your band starts to fall apart you know there's a, there's a kind of sad inevitability to that with uh, with, with a band that do, does do very very well it seems I mean I think we can count on one hand the super bands that actually manage to hold together yeah
Very few. I mean, I'm just trying to... Who would you say? Rush? <laughs> yeah. Um, but if you watch their documentary, they pride themselves in being ordinary. Yeah. Uh, they pride themselves in not being over the top with drinking, and they pride themselves in the fact that they weren't into drugs and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, it's a super su successful band also becomes um, a generator of income and a generator of salaries. And you start finding that uh, you've got a crew that you've got to look after. And you bond with that crew because you're out there traveling together week after week, month after month. And you're painfully aware that they're dependent for their livelihood on the activity of the band. And you take that responsibly. You have, a, you know, a record company that's making bukus of money off you. Um, they want they want more product. They would they want to make more profit. So it becomes a little bit of a pressure cooker too. Um, it's difficult to uh, to keep that all in check sometimes. I think that's what gravitated me a lot towards. I'm not much of a and I feel stupid saying this. I'm not much of a reader. I know how to read. <laughs> I just I've just never been a book person. But there was a period in my life, and it was probably when I first started my my radio career when I actually did take public transportation and I would start reading uh, specifically uh, autobiographies. The one that really drew me in first was The Dirt. It's funny how long ago I read the book and now the movie is finally going to come out on, on Netflix. But you know, reading Stevens, reading Slashes, uh, Anthony Kiedis's is, is one of the best uh, uh, that I've read. And just seeing what they've, everything that you're talking about, gone through, whether it's the family life, whether they started out as the you know, uh, the Saul Hudson, as, as somebody else, a normal person to grow up to be that character and the path that they've gone through, that we've all gone through, whether it be actual addiction, whether it be family shit, whether it's problems at work. There was something that really I wanted to read about it because I felt like it was a life that I I, I wasn't living. You know, I, I, can, I, I felt what they were going through, but I just, I was so much of an introvert that I never got to experience all these the heartbreaks and, and the, the, the successes I guess kept to myself. There was something that just really attracted to me to these stories, and I would take something take solace from from knowing that these famous people, as silly it is, because these are just people, whether they're famous or not, sh shouldn't matter, but this culture makes them matter. That's why, like what you just said before, I hope Axel and I, definitely not speaking uh, on his behalf, I, I can't. Uh, does appreciate what he means to other people, which is why I hope he's writing a book, which is, I think he would do a lot for mental health if he spoke out about it. Um, I, I just, it's it's the right, I feel like he might be the right person with the right platform to talk about these things. Slash talks about it, Duff, of course, talks about it, but I feel like Axel would really start a major conversation, someone like him on his level to talk about mental health and to see him now how him smiling on stage to what he was like how do you how did you get there it doesn't have to be the dirt of all the the bullshit the gnr lies so to speak but how did you get from such an angry axel to where you are now where you're smiling and waving on stage i feel like that could help a lot of people if we knew how that happened yeah i think you're right and i mean you know 
the last thing I'd want to do is, you know, oh, go, woe is me, everything is terrible. Um, but the fact of the matter is that, you know, the rise of a band is a magical thing. And there are many splendid and wonderful moments in that process. Um, but, you know, a cliche is a cliche is a cliche because it's got a kernel of truth in it. And when something becomes successful and when things change around you and people change around you, and we, we can talk a little bit later about, you know, who's the first to realize, you know, the band's getting successful. It's the people around the band because, and they start behaving differently. Mm. You know, they become more deferential. They want to hang out, you know, and you're kind of looking around and going, what went on? You know, this person isn't the same person he was six months ago to me. Um, you know, but getting back to the cliche, um, it is absolutely true that when you when you get a big bank account or when the structure of your life changes it may cure the problems you had before then but it will bring its own problems and they can be just as vexing and taxing and grinding as more commonplace problems um, I always used to laugh at David Lee Roth's comment Money can't buy you happiness, but you can buy a yacht and pull up right next to it and drop anchor. <laughs> he is a wise, wise man, that Diamond Dave. That's that's someone I would look. See, that's that's. I'm glad you brought him up because uh, one of my my good friends, and I'm, as I'm sure you know, people grow older, have kids, you don't talk to them as much, but. One of my good friends, uh, Chris Bichel, as my favorite band was Guns N' Roses, his was Van Halen, where I would, you know, be this, the cliche Jewish guy who's, you know, everything is, is I'm so neurotic and everything's a problem and I worry. He just was cool as a cucumber. He was Mr. David Lee Roth. He, I'm like, how did you, how do you do that? Like, how do you get to that level? Is it just liking Van Halen? You know, like, is... And that's why he would uh, – sometimes he would shit on um, on grunge, like how sad it was. He's like, no, I want to party like poison. I want to be like Van Halen and just have this, you know, this fun attitude. And he even told me once to give me the advice, like just look in the mirror and say, you are so fucking good looking. And just say that every day and one day you'll start to believe it. And I just thought that – and I actually I admit I did that a few times. And it's funny because you make yourself laugh of anything else. But – Again, the I, the Axel part of it, the GNR part of it, and to see the turmoil the band went through, um, it was just a, a wave that I I kind of rode. But I'm I'm curious about because again, like, we'll well, talk. In, you know, dysmorphia and acceptance. I mean, you know, we're a couple of guys talking. Um, if you want to talk and talk about those sort of things, it, it, it's almost obligatory that we wheel in a couple of females and have them talk about dysmorphia. Sure, uh, sure. You know, I, li I live with a stunning-looking woman, and she doesn't see it. You know, all she sees is what is wrong, and I'm looking at her face and going, you're out of your mind, you know? Sure. sure. You know, and watch how people react to you. But to her, 
she looks in the mirror and goes, I need this, that needs to fix, you know, and she, she's realizing that she's not 22 anymore. And it's like, yeah, but you're still utterly stunning, you know. Um, that relates to, again, uh, social pressure. Social pressure. And that relates to, yep. again, how I've looked at Axel over the years. And uh, someone said to me once, because I always feel like I don't wear the same stuff all the time. I kind of change up my look a little bit. I'm going to wait until you're out of the wind tunnel. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I, like, I, like, there are people who wear, you know, the same kind of cut shirt all the time or the same kind of hat all the time, the same pants. It's like, it's their look. You know, maybe, maybe I can compare it to, maybe like how That's Axel me. is. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it, it works for it, some it, it, It's really simple for me. I mean, you know, I go into my walk-in closet and at the bottom left-hand side of my walk-in closet there are about a dozen black shirts that are all <laughs> exactly the same. Um, the thing that's amazing about them is they were made for me by Ray Brown in 1987 and 1988 and they are still perfect. Nice. I mean, just great craftsmanship that Ray Brown had. He used to make... Uh, Stage clothing for everybody, just everybody, um, including GNR. But um, part part of that, from my point of view, is convenience, comfort, and getting to a point of going, this works for me. I feel comfortable doing that. So, you know, do I care that I wear a pair of black jeans and a black shirt every day? No, I, that just works for me. I'm comfortable doing that. So, you know, it, the flamboyance in, in clothing is, you know, I, I a full jacket or two. But they basically, I'm comfortable with my own little uniform. I got you, and I have plenty of friends. I mean, I, you know, just like every other rocker, I have a million black T-shirts and, a, and a, you know, a million band T-shirts. But it's just the, the subtle things that I, I might do that... Because I'll have friends that just wear a shirt with a, uh, a hoodie every day, and that's just like their their look. But to compare to, you know, of course, our six degrees of of G and R bacon to grow up to see Axel always changing his look, and he was a is a, a good looking guy, and I'm like, that's so cool how he can always change his look and how he, you know, it highlights this, highlights that, and I would look at him as as far as like a, like a fashion, um, you know, role model so to speak, to, to again find myself. I'm trying to find myself through Axl Rose, which sounds like a book. Well, I, I, I was really happy when he uh, got away from the big hair that you can see in uh, the Jungle video. Sure. Um, I, I, was, um, I, I, think, I think he got tired of Duff walking into a room looking at him and going, nice hair, dude. <laughs> you know, just dripping with cynicism. <laughs> um, and I think Duff finally you know, edged him into something that worked a little better for him. But, um, yeah, again, for a performer, um, you know, there are, there are pressures there. I, am I still going to be loved? Am I still going to be relevant? Do I still, do I need to reinvent myself? Um, you know, some people start their careers knowing that they're going to reinvent as often as possible to re-stimulate in interest. I mean, Lady Gaga took it from Madonna. You know, Madonna took it from David Bowie. Um, you know, those, those are people who 
tried to keep two or three steps ahead of being passe or last year um, and lived in fear of that. Um, it's so much worse now because you're right. You can look at uh, David Bowie or, or Grace Jones, and 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 it was it was before social media, but now it's it bothers me. And people going back to David Lee Roth, and of course talking about Axel, they've obviously aged, as we all do. We we're talking about your your wonderful lady there. We all age. Uh, it's just what social media does, and it's just. Look where Axel seems to be in such a good place now, and then people just picking on his looks. And it's just, and I'm still obsessed with mine, you know, and just to think that, like, wow, I could be an Axel Rose and still get shit. And it's just, it boggles my mind, because how many people out there go through their family photo album and then turn and go, Grandma, you look awful. You used to look so much better when you were 20. You're, you're... Grandma, you should be embarrassed. No one says that. Everyone becomes a grandma. Everyone becomes a grandpa. Even well, Axel. You know, I mean, come on. You, you know that one of the, the primary rules of the internet is don't scroll down. Yeah. Don't whatever you do go onto a comment board, um, you know, because there, there are a lot of mean spirits being expressed there. And... I don't think it's too superficial to say I think a lot of that mean-spiritedness comes from envy and people thinking that being able to post something that lots of people will read um, equates them to the subject of their venom. Yep. Um, you know, and it's, it's rather sad, but, you know, on the other hand, take a look at that person who's who's being venomous and unpleasant and just stop for a second and go, I wonder what his shoes are like. I wonder if I'd want to walk a mile in them. What kind of life have they got? You know, what have they got to look forward to? What gives them hope? What lifts their spirit? Um, I think we do a terrible job in this society in lifting people's spirits. I think we are far too predatory and focused on um, making profit for big entities. Um, you know, you can look at television and go, yeah, what's, what's on the menu today? Oh, right, sex and death for a change. <laughs> you know, every day we're pumping sex and death through the screen. Um, it's, and, and you look at, you look at the, uh, the rise of the Marvel films. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's that cartoon thing of I could be a superhero and sitting in the movie and identifying with my favorite character momentarily I'm beating life instead of life beating the shit out of me Um, so I think some of that mean spirit comes from there and you know we agreed to to have a conversation today because we were going to touch on on depression and I think the reason that you and I agreed to do it was Certainly not to have a an oh woe is me moment. No, not at all. But anybody who is in a depressed state of mind, I think it might help just a tiny bit to hear from somebody who has been through it, been through it profoundly to the point of being suicidal. Sure. To to have somebody say, you know what, hang in there. 
try and do some things that will change change your viewpoint exercise it a little bit more maybe get a pet um do something that makes you feel better put on your favorite record because you can get through it it is possible to get through everything isn't always dark there is always a sunrise at some point nothing lasts forever and if you're suffering from depression I will tell you as somebody who had it in spades at one point, you can get through it. And when you do get through it, you find it was worth getting through. You find yourself perhaps in a relationship that you had no expectation of. And you might have been in a state of mind where I was entirely reclusive. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want anybody around, mm -hmm. let alone a fucking relationship and deal with that. Mm -hmm. And then boom, one day it just burst through my front door and I had to deal with it. And you know, that was a major aspect of me getting to a, a better state of mind and a healthier state of mind and, and you know, a, a more balanced state of mind where I could look at what's gone on and go, well, that happened. Um, and let's polish the better memories and let's leave the dark memories on the shelf in the cupboard and turn off the light on them. Can you take us through, because uh, I've you know sprinkled in my story throughout, but I think people listening uh, care, and I say this fun, uh, care more about you uh, than me right now, are you able to take us through what happened specifically or or just maybe you don't have to go into spe uh, specifics if you don't want, but just what happened? Like, where were you mentally, you know, were, were you totally different mentally when like when you were with Great White and then when you were with, with GNR and then was it triggered at the end of GNR? Because famously, we, we, we know about Stephen Adler, you know, his book and and I'm glad that he at least has gotten to play with his his brothers again, even though it's not what he, he seemingly wants, but he's survived, which I think is just the number one goal. Are you able to yep. take us through a little bit of your, your journey? Uh, of course, talking about mental health and, you know, seeing how good you know, are now and a great place you are now to go from the dark to the light. Are you able to, to, to guide us through that a little bit? Well, I know it's tough. Great White, great, great White was the first band that I ever managed. And there was a lightheartedness about that project. We went through some difficult times. We got a, uh, uh, a recording contract in 1983 and then got thrown off the label in 1984. Um, and usually uh, when a band is thrown off a label after their debut record, um, the conventional wisdom in Hollywood is they're done. You know, nobody wants to know. Um, my point of view is a little bit different. My my point of view was if we were worth signing in 1983, we're damn sight worth more now that we've had a year on the road with the likes of White Snake and Judas Priest and gone through a major recording process and been on a very, very steep, fast learning curve for a year. And we're all better now than we were in 83, um, you know, and our relationship with EMI USA 
may have gone to shit, but it doesn't mean to say we can't have a good relationship with another label. Um, you know, ironically, it took me a year and a half to reinvent the band and to get them re-signed, and we end up on Capital, mm. which was, you know, the label that owned EMI USA. Um, you know, <laughs> how ironic is that? But, um, in you know, the point the point of pointing that out is it wasn't all beer and skittles all the way <laughs> we had adversity and we had to hold together and stay together and apply our intelligence and our skills and our talents to go after what we all wanted to get after but in general there was a lightheartedness about it and you know jack russell bless his heart for all his incredible faults that he will readily admit at this at this time in his life he was also a very amusing person to be around he was a lot of fun at times um and when i took on gnr it immediately felt like more of a strain and more working and there was a good amount of stress around that entity from the get-go. Um, you know, I'd, I'll never forget Izzy bursting into my hotel room on about the third date of the uh, first national tour that the band did with opening for the cult. And he bursts into my room, doesn't say hello or anything, he just pushes past me, flops into the sofa, looks at me, and I go... Izzy, what up? And Izzy looks at me and he goes, that fucker makes us miserable every fucking day. And, you know, and I look at him and I go, yeah, well, you know, Axel's got issues. We know this. He's Axel, you know, but we're out on tour. Let's look at what's working and what the bright, the bright side is. But the point was there was stress and anxiety around that entity from the very get-go. And it wasn't particularly lighthearted. And... It was also interesting to me that, you know, Slash felt it was reasonably carefree until Donington. Um, that had an impact on us all. And I think he said it in his book that that was the moment when, for him, GNR no longer felt in any way at any time carefree. Um, so there was always stress there. And the day comes and you're in your office and you get the phone call and somebody says, oh, your band has gone to number one on Billboard. And you actually find yourself quietly sitting alone in the room and pushing the chair back and going, you know, I thought I'd feel different hmm. if something like that ever happened in my life. And I never thought or anticipated that something like that would happen in my life. Uh, that always happened for other people who were more intelligent, better looking, um, more talented, you know, because you second guess yourself. Right, you know? yeah. I'm, I'm, am I good enough to be here? Am I good enough to be on the same playground as, you know, a Mick Jagger or whomever, you know? Um, you always second guess and doubt yourself. And it's only in hindsight you look back and go, you know, we were pretty damn good at what we did and we were pretty smart at what we did and we made some pretty good music. You know, you can see it in hindsight now. But in the moment, you kind of wonder. 
You're saying a lot of r- relatable things. Uh, there are people who lose their job and they have to collect themselves and the family has to yeah. work through it. You know, do, yeah. do, you, do, you, do you persevere? Do you uh, dig uh, the well deeper? Uh, yeah. Oh. I mean, are, are there are certain family members that may cause more oh. friction, making a situation even worse. So you're saying things that are really, yeah, they're on the GNR level, but they're well, common you, people you just, problems. You, you just used a really significant word. You said job. And when I got the phone call from, from Axel saying he was going to breach contract and he didn't want to work with me anymore, that had an impact on me that I didn't anticipate because for me, what I was doing was not a job. It was a way of life. And I felt a much stronger connection to the people I was working with than people in an, in an, in a job situation. You know, I'd worked at Virgin, uh, Green World, you know, uh, it was a different kind of relationship. And whereas, when you have a job, you can clock out at five or six. When you're working with a band that you care about, it's a way of life. It's 24-7. Sure. It's 365. And there's, there's misguidedly, perhaps, a temptation to use the word family. So when your family fires you, that hits you a little harder than perhaps you you know you think it's going to you think well you know that's fucked up um but you know we'll we'll move on we'll we'll get by um but did you have that it it was not something i was expecting okay um and i'll put it bluntly you know axel may have been an asshole but he was my asshole, and I went out there and I fought for him mm. as I fought for the entire band. You know, I signed a contract with five individuals collectively known as GNR. I didn't have a, a contract, a working contract with one individual. Um, and we'd been on, a, you know, an extraordinary journey. It's well known that no one wanted to manage the band, you know, Zootout came and begged me to pretend to manage the band so he could get them in the studio. And I said, Tom, I'm not going to do that, but I will go and talk to them, you know, and see if anything comes of it. Um, so we we went from having an entity that was within weeks of being thrown off Geffen, which is what Eddie Rosenblatt wanted to do. He wanted to dispense with them because he thought they were just unmanageable and a waste of time and money. Um, and we went from that to selling out Wembley Arena. It was an amazing <laughs> journey. And when that goes away from you, you don't perhaps realize it, or I didn't perhaps realize it at the time, but that affected me more than I thought it would. Mm. Uh, and then there's the fact that, you know, Doug Goldstein was, in Tom Zutout's words, he whispered in my ear one day at a dinner, Doug Goldstein is not your friend. He had just come from a meeting with Goldstein and Axel. And it was that was just uh, a little bit before I got the phone call from Axel. Um, when, you, when you feel that you've been betrayed, and then when you've, the band that got you into the process in the first place, I mean, 
Jack Russell said, we want you to manage us. And I said, you're out of your mind. I don't know anything about management. And Jack looked at me and he said, you'll learn. And that was an extraordinary relationship. So when that one went away too, and from 1995 until just last year, if you'd put me and Jack in the same room, you might just as well bring a pine box as well, because I'd have <laughs> filled him, you know. Um, but we've actually seen each other, spent a little time together in the last few months. And I, you know, his physical condition is, is not, not good. Mm. And Lord knows how many NDEs he's had, near death experiences he's had. But the person I know today is just as funny, but now he's better connected to his intelligence. And more significantly, he's far more connected to his sense of spirit. And he's really grown hmm. and he's a much better person um, but even so when that band went away again you know after 13 years that was an impact and then when you finally get to the point where you find out that when the, the woman you're married to finally says something of profound honesty to you and she says your problem is that you just did not understand that for me our marriage was a matter of convenient opportunities <laughs> That's one way of putting it. Oh, well, now you're well, you're not just on the slippery slope. Now you're over the cliff edge emotionally and spiritually. Now you're at a point of going, what the fuck? Everything I valued, everything I put my energy into, everything I put my intelligence into, everything I put my love into, has turned out to be false and not what I thought it was. And that's the moment where the soil under your feet liquefies and you think. Um, in a nutshell, that's what took me over the edge. And I went totally over the edge for quite a while. <sighs> I, 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 a lot of your story... Obviously, it's on a, another another level because they're dealing with famous bands. But just the premise, very identifiable to I'm sure many of our listeners. But to me, and it it ties into this podcast. The last FM station I was on, uh, WBAB on Long Island, I, I didn't I didn't even apply to it because the last station before that, WRCN, uh, I gave blood, sweat, and tears to. I did everything they asked. I was Everything I, I worked on was uh, successful, uh, but being let go because they didn't want to pay me more than twenty grand a year. Yes, radio, uh, radio in some places is that bad. Uh, yeah. That was. I went through maybe you can identify with uh, anger, and then sadness because that wasn't just a job to me. Like being a manager, uh, it was a way of life. Radio was a way of life to me because people call me Brando, even though I introduced myself as Brandon. People, so many people knew me from the radio and, and started calling me Brando. Even my friends who I grew up with started calling me Brando. I'm like, what am I now? And then when BAB just came out and said, you know, offered me a part-time job, I was there a year. I kind of felt, you know, oh, yeah, this station plays so much Guns N' Roses. I, I love it here. Uh, being praised for a year. And then when they started uh, losing money, 
they were trying to find anything, any excuse to to get rid of me. Right. And, and that was, I got to admit, I cried uh, when that happened because I felt like after my dad had passed, I was on this path. Like, what is my purpose? You know, uh, I, I enjoyed doing the ra- radio because, yeah, I can make money doing other, more money doing other jobs, but this was my purpose. This was my lifestyle. This is where I felt good about myself being involved in the radio world. And what, one of the things that, you know, in addition to therapy and all that, you know, the, the stuff that you really need going to, to AA and, and all these other, the, the, the real, the, the, the things that are out there, the, the services that are out there, it's oddly enough, this podcast really carried me through talking about this band, talking to different people, such like yourself, Alan, uh, helped me and, and gave me worth, you know, hearing from people all over the world, you know, not just, Hey, cool guns and roses facts. It's like, I like the way you do your interviews. I, I like, you know, your personality. I like these things. It's, it's gave, given me purpose. It's helped me still to this day, to this very conversation, it's helping me get through so i can see what you're talking about because i was yeah i i was I, I, really bad too I, I i love the fact that you're doing what you're doing um you know and we all hit road bumps in our lives every now and then but you've you know you've you've stayed with your passion and you're also doing it in a way that you know when we first talked my reaction was what the fuck? Nobody's going to sit and listen to us for two hours. Are you out of your mind? People have got lives to live. And then I find out to my shock and surprise, actually people do because they... My surprise too. <laughs> they, they connect to uh, a conversation. And, you know, the interview format, uh, especially on air, you know, is really quick and fast. And it's basically uh, a matter of shilling for the latest piece of product uh-huh. or the gig. You know, I, podcasts, I think, are, are, are really interesting because of the opportunity to get into a subject in depth and to encourage somebody to be more open. I mean, you know, I, I do a thing with Mitch Lafon yep. and... He'll, he'll, he'll chase somebody down and the PR will say, oh, you can get 10 or 15 minutes. And I always smile and say, take the 10 or 15 minutes because I know that once they start talking to Mitch, they'll stay because he listens and he asks pertinent, intelligent questions and people in, enjoy being respectfully asked about what they care about deeply, you know. Um, so you'll get a Peter Frampton who might have had a reputation of being not the easiest of interviews, and you have a splendid one with him because you take the time and you ask decent questions. I mean, you know, if you want, I'll take you back to the Bible. Okay, going way back. Yeah. You know, it opens up with something like, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was good and the word was God and God was the word, etc., etc. And for much of my life, I looked at that as the way it was taught to me was that it was a statement of belief. In other words, you must believe everything written in this book from this point on because it's so divinely ordered. And then one day I had an intelligent reaction to it, and I went, 
Fuck off. That's not what it says at all. Hmm. What it says is, in the beginning is communication. And communication is good. Because from communication, you get understanding. From understanding, you get empathy. And from empathy, you get patience. And that's how people should read that. It's not be blind, be obedient. What the statement says is communicate, be open, be patient. You know, if we had, you know, an awful lot of our problems in the world dented mm. with greater cooperation, with greater, greater patience and greater understanding. That's key. That's why I have uh, patience in Hebrew uh, tattooed on me. Wasn't just for the G. Oh shit. Yeah, it wasn't just for the GNR reference, but just the the patience being able to just awesome. breathe, let things come to you. It's very it, it's difficult. Yeah. You know, I I would also compare. Well, you've got to be a little bit uh -huh. zen too. You know, it. It's hard for me. It's something that my partner and my you know, I call her my partner because she's more than a wife. And you guys fight crime together? We don't fight crime together, but, you know, <laughs> we work on projects together and we discuss music together and we discuss ideas together. And um, it's really good to have a partner in a, in a relationship. Um, but one of, the, one of the things, one of the many things I've learned from her is a little bit of Zen. And she will say, be still in the water. In other words, imagine yourself in a pool with lots of beautiful, fragrant flowers floating on the surface of the pool. If you thrash around, they'll all move away from you. If you stay still, eventually, they will all come to you. It's very true. And that's, a, and that's a very interesting way to look at moments of stress and anxiety when you think things aren't working or something's not going. And, you know, I think that the most significant thing I took out of my uh, uh, days at Virgin uh, was a first-hand understanding through experience of the power of the word yes. Um, back in those days, I mean, when I started at Virgin driving the van, I was, I think there were probably about 20 of us working in the company. Um, it was very early days. And when something needed to be done, I learned very quickly to say, yes, I'll do that. Then walk out of my boss's office and go, fuck, how do I do this? But I learned to say yes first and be positive and step through the door. Um, and again, that's, that is also something that I think is a little bit of a key to unlock depression. It's be prepared to say yes. Be prepared to step through a door that you don't know exactly what's on, on the other side. Um, be prepared to say, yes, I'll go out and, and have a beer with you, or I'll go out and have a burger with you. Say yes, go do something, because that's how doors open, is with the key of yes. It's very true. That's something, again, that I've, I've learned, is just to go out and, and to experience, because... You know, in a weird way, I was identifying again with Axel being away, kind of being hidden, being a hermit. Again, what the public perception was. And it was just a little thing of just him going out, you know. And it wasn't like a conscious thing. 
I was like, oh, Axel's out and about. I'll be out and about. It wasn't like I actively said that, but it's just those those certain people in your life, whether it is a rock star you never met, whether it's a family member, uh, a relationship, a job, it's all it's all the variables. It's people, places, and things they, they teach you in, in AA that help you. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a reason why they have Jedis in those Star Wars movies. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, all of us like to look to somebody as a guide. All of us like to look to somebody as an example. Um, and all of us like to look at somebody as personifying possibility. Um, I, it's not a crazy thing to be encouraged that somebody you admire is out and about and photographed and seen and go, you know what, I'm going to pull my trousers on and go out too. You know, that's not a crazy thing. That That's easily understandable in the human mind. It's very true. And I'm glad that uh, Axel said yes to getting back with Slash and vice versa. And I'm glad that you, Alan, said yes to doing this this podcast because I think our, our second conversation uh, on air you're like, hey, I'm like, hey, whenever you want to come back, you're like, I think that's enough GNR for quite a while. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, obviously I love the fact because, uh, you know, I always thank well, certainly me. enough of me. No, people like when I uh, people <laughs> like hearing from you. You know, I know sometimes you, you got to put out statements uh, to, to get your voice out, but you're always welcome here. I mean, I I it's on my um my press release or if you want to call it like what I, I it's what on what I put to iHeart. To help sell right. this podcast is your quote that you said to me about, you know, I, I enjoy those who avoid cliche rockisms and, and making a worthwhile conversation. I've, I, I'm paraphrasing your yeah. your brilliant comment, but that's, you know, that statement helped me, you know, uh, with with my depression because it's it's it ebbs and flows, you know, and that's something it, that it, it always does, and you know, it's with that mental condition. It's not like something that one day magically it's completely gone from you. You will always have those dark moments. There will always be a moment when a shadow goes over the sun. But, you know, what do the AA people do? They say one day at a time. Right. You know, and just deal with that. And for me, um, I love cats. And if I sit down and, and have a smoke and spend a little time with my cat, then what was oppressive in my my mind, you know, 15, 20 minutes ago, has lessened. It's not as bad anymore, and it's taken its proportion, and it's not overwhelming. Um, that's, you know, depression for me is two things. It's being overwhelmed and dispirited, and it's fatigue, you know, and being thoroughly fatigued with oneself as much as anything um, but as I said before if anybody's listening and if any if this means anything to you you can get by it that's why I want to talk about this today with you Alan because you know I need to tell myself that uh, I need to, to be an example for my younger brothers um, and I have gotten Listeners, when I've talked about, you know, we get into conversations about West Arkeen or, of course, Axel himself, what Slash has gone through. When I spoke to uh, a couple of the McKagan brothers talking about, you know, Duff's journey. And I just I feel like I have to if I want someone else to share their story, I'm going to share my story. And 
it, and people seem to appreciate that. So, you know, I hope uh, in addition to, you know, some cool GNR stuff, uh, is, is people are going to take something from our conversation today because, you know, it, it's something that's not going to go away as long as humans exist. It's something that we're going to have to battle because we've certainly created a, uh, a society that I don't know if, if, it, if it helps. It, well, uh, maybe a society that hurts mental health. I think it's good now that we're trying to find outlets and it's being spoken about more and it's not as taboo anymore. Yep. So that's why, again, what I said before, I think if Axel Rose spoke about this, he doesn't have to talk about, you know, the dirt stuff. He doesn't have to talk about all these things that happened during the Chinese democracy era, his relationship with Slash. How did he get to where he is now? Assuming, because that's what it seems to be, he's in a good place because I think it would help. And they always say, as long as you help one person, hey, that one person has a family. It affects so many more. So you can literally be saving lives. So, uh, you know, not like, it's, you know, I hope I, it happens. Not that I would know, um, but as a mildly curious observer, I'd look at Axel and, I'd, and if I were asked to identify what has helped him most, I would I would look at it and I'd say, you know, I don't really consider Team Brazil to be brilliant managers. I mean, good God, you know, the mistakes they've made. I mean, the box set, give me a break. Um, but this is what I always think. I think they've been a family for him. And I think that he actually, you know, we were talking earlier about people forming bands to form their perfect family. Right. Well, I don't know if he's. I don't know if he's got a perfect family, and every family has its problems. But I think he's got one, and I think that's what he needed, and that's what he wanted, and he's finally got one. Yeah, and that's why I, you know, I've never, I've never officially reached out. But if that's what Team Brazil did for him to give him the family, uh, bless them, you know, because it's. Yeah. We, well, we got it. It got him through two years of touring. <laughs> yeah, and we'll see what the future holds. I mean, we know what Slash is doing. Duff's coming out with a solo record. Uh, Gilby Clark's coming out with another record. First time in a long time. Uh, I mean, now the rumor is Brian Johnson's back in ACDC. I would love to have seen. I know you're, you're different from opinion. I liked Ax uh, I, I liked I, Axel DC, but I'm not sure that Brian is uh, that his his condition is going to let him tour. It's the rumor I've heard. Okay. That, you know, they could record together, but he may not tour with them. So Axel DC may well be an entity next year. Who knows? Oh, well, that would be cool. And I would love, you know, if there would be a, on, on the new album, like Axel sings on it with Brian. How badass would that be? And think, again, Brian's been through a lot. It's, it's all these guys that we idolize, we look up to as figures or just people, you know, just flesh and blood. They were all... We were all once Bill Bailey, so to speak. Yeah, and there's no school to go to to, to deal with quote-unquote success. And don't be surprised if you're very successful. At some point, you'll get a little taste of PTSD. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I, I know about that uh, as well. You know, uh, certainly our veterans do, but that can come in many forms and be triggered by... Yeah. A lot of different things. I found that interesting when uh, we spoke to Dr. Steve last uh, episode when he, he wishes he still spoke to the band members, but he said he ran into Duff you know, a few uh, years ago and spent like 10 minutes talking. And he's like, Duff was kind of jarred 
seeing me because that was during the height of some of his his addictions. So he just triggered stuff. And we all know how well Duff is now. I mean, the guy can be an action movie star. Uh, th- but just the fact that he, as, as mentally healthy as he seems to be, he could still be triggered by something. So it's, um, it's a never-ending well, road. You're, you're hitting a thread here. You know, Duff has family that he, he appears to be very happy with. Um, Slash is now in a really good relationship. Um, family matters. I know. And that's something, uh, unfortunately for me, I, I realized uh, a little too late, but I'm trying to live my life differently now, and that's all you can do. That's all you can do. Oh, yeah. Oh, every morning when you get up, it's a, it, you can change anything you want in the coming morning. When you look in, when you look in the mirror, after you've told yourself that you're stunningly handsome and Hollywood are missing out... Also look at yourself and say, I can change anything today. Mm. I have the ability if I have the will. That's what it comes down to. That's what it comes yep. down to. Uh, nothing lasts forever, as someone yep. once said. <laughs> no, nothing lasts forever. Well, listen, I've probably taken up far too much of your time. Um, always a pleasure to talk with you, Brando. Absolutely, Alan. You know, I'm happy to be able to consider you a friend. Uh, I am rooting Even for. You support the wrong fucking hockey team. <laughs> Islanders are in first place since the like my mom was pregnant with me. You know they they yeah. so yeah. let me enjoy this you know a little bit. I, I need it. Oh, I will. I, I don't know how long we're gonna be there. Uh, so, uh, but it's always wonderful to talk uh, hockey with you and our friend Mitch Lafon, who I will always credit and thank for introducing us. You know, I always give credit where credit is due because uh, that's where I am now. I want to show appreciation to people, which is something that I, I didn't do when I was younger, but I'm living my life differently now. But yeah, th- showing, thanks, Showing Alan. appreciation and being kind are two wonderful things to contribute to the world. I do my best. I have my moments, especially driving here in traffic in New York City. You want to, you know, kill it. <laughs> you want to kill everybody. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, yeah, I, I'm nice yeah. when I, I don't have the road rage. But Alan, obviously, you're always welcome on, and um, you know, to talk about whatever you want to talk about—hockey, mental health, of course—and um, if it ties to Guns N' Roses, great. But I know my listeners en- enjoy hearing from you, and I know I love talking to you. Well, thank you very much, and hopefully, you know, if there was somebody listening today who's not having a good time, um, and if anything we've said is in any way helpful then it's been all worthwhile, hasn't it? Absolutely. 100%. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Alan. So Alan Niven, part three. I like to think each one of our conversations has been very different. And, and, and what a way with words he has. Now, I can obviously speak to, with him all day, and I'm very grateful for his, for his time. Um, you know, I appreciate all of you. Uh, yeah, we got some cool GNR tidbits in there, and I know a lot of... I shouldn't say a lot, but there are the GNR fans that just want the facts. They just want the bullet points, you know, the dirt. I don't know. I, I like conversations like this because this is a Guns N' Roses guy that's gone through what I've gone through, what you may have gone through, what you may go through uh, in the future that we all can relate. I'm sure we all are aware of that um, when it comes to Axl Rose, the Slash, to Duff McKagan, their, their journey. And I think it's one of the many reasons why we love this band. It's not because they rock, you know, it, it's because of 
the characters that make it up. And now and Niven being one of them. So that does it for episode 102 of Appetite for Distortion. Really appreciate all of you, whether you found us on AlternativeNation.net, on the iHeartRadio app, on Spreaker, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, on YouTube, on Google Play. Appreciate all of you. Uh, please follow and subscribe to all of them. You know, the more numbers we get, the bigger guests that we get. Uh, and speaking of which, uh, on the way, I did confirm this. Um, I'm going to have to confirm how to pronounce his last name. But Carmen Apice, Carmen Apice, you know, from Vanilla Fudge. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm going to be interviewing him most likely next episode. Now, uh, obviously a very legendary career, but he's worked with, with Slash. Uh, I believe he's recently worked with Bumblefoot. So we're going to do some GNR stuff in there too, in addition to what he, uh, you know, uh, the other parts of our conversation, I should say. Uh, did get another thumbs up from uh, Susan Holmes McKagan's people. You know, just working out on a time because it's when her book comes out. Um, Billy Rowe from Jet Boy, he's still working on getting me, um, or getting us, I should say, because Billy Rowe from Jet Boy, we interviewed him a few episodes ago, but he's going to play co-host, and we're going to get on a special guest. I don't even know who the special guest is going to be. We've shot around some ideas, and we'll, we'll see what happens. That's what this podcast is like. That's what this band is like. Let's just see what happens. <laughs> and one more thing before I get out of here, obviously, it's interesting to have Doug Goldstein and Alan Niven on back-to-back -back episodes. I know some of you have said, try to get them on at the same time. Um, I, I joked with, with Doug, maybe we'll, we'll get Oprah as the co-host and, you know, have Alan and Doug on and we can have kind of like a, and Dr. Phil, you know, have a therapy session. I, I haven't even mentioned that to Alan at all. So, I mean, you never know, but, uh, not anytime soon is, is, is for sure. And also open invitation to anyone from Team Brazil, whether it's Fernando, Beta, um, I'm here just to have a conversation. I, I don't try to get dirt. Um, I, I'm just here to kind of let those who have been in the public eye really show their personalities, the side that we don't know, the side that we don't read about, the side that is, is really you, is true to you. So just wanted to put that out there. Anyway, that does it for episode 102. When will you see the next episode of Appetite for Distortion? Well, in the words of Axel Rose concerning Chinese democracy, you'll see it. I don't know if soon is the word. No! Fuck it! No! Thanks to the lame-ass security, I'm going home. <laughs>